Previously on Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Thursday night they called and they said, look, uh, you know, there's no one going to be in the office until Tuesday, so we've canceled your flights and we're going to reschedule them after that. We were really upset with them. Well, that was American 191, uh, the flight out of O'Hare that lost its engine um, and crashed and killed everybody on board. That was the flight we were we had been booked on that they had canceled. From beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Beach Blanket. Hello, everybody. This is Spaz, and you have tuned into Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. This is episode 1.5, and we've got a great show lined up for you. Uh, first off, we're going to continue my conversation with Shoes singer songwriter Jeff Murphy and discuss the album Present Tense. We're also going to have a Blanket Fort powwow and discuss power pop of all things. And we've got an interview with translators Steve Barton, who's here to discuss his latest solo album. We've got all that and a whole lot more. So stick around for some Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Well, good golly, Miss Molly, it's time to play some tunes. Keep on. 
new music from Lanny Flowers. It's a song called Day Glow All Night, and that's from the album March to Home. It's available on Spider Pop Records. Before that, you heard a band called Club Wow, featuring former Dead Boys and Stiff Baders band member Jimmy Zero, and that was a classic tune. That's from a retrospective called Nowhere Fast, available on Zero Hour Records. You're listening to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Stick around. We've got a lot more to come. In our last episode, I explained the impact that Shoes' 1979 album, Present Tense, had on my life, and I discussed the recording process with band member Jeff Murphy. In this episode, we continue that conversation and learn more about the magic that went into making one of Power Pop's classic albums. Any of the songs that showed up on Present Tense, were these things written after Black Vinyl Shoes, or were some of these songs originally written around the same time? Um, they did kind of cross over a bit. I mean, Tomorrow Night um, 
was written before we we even talked to Electra or signed the deal. That was written as a result of um, after we finished Black Vinyl Shoes in 1977, uh, we had hooked up with Greg Shaw from yeah. um, Bomp Magazine and Bomp Records. And Bomp was er, Greg was trying to get Bomp Records started. So he was signing bands. He signed the Romantics. Um, he signed us. He had a bunch of different, he had 2020, um, a lot of kind of like-minded, um, I guess now they call it power pop bands. And um, he wanted us to do a single. So we decided we were going to redo the song OK from uh, Black Final Shoes. And because we're very democratic and we try to make equal, equal representation, John had written the song OK. So we figured, well, Gary and I will do a, um, you know, a, a co-write a song uh, for the B-side that we all writers, all three writers represented. So we sat down and Gary and I had never done that before. Uh, John and Gary had, but Gary and I had never written a song together. So um, um, it was tense. You know, we have Gary and I are both probably the most um, uh, opinionated members of the band. Not that John isn't, but um, uh, John is probably more uh, passive. Gary and I are, you know, we, we get, we get really excited and very impassioned very quickly about something. So, so we, well, we hacked it out and we, we came up with, I had started this song and I had in, in its really rough form, I'd called it wonder wax just because I hadn't written any words and I liked the syllables. And, um, uh, but I had kind of the, the, the rhythm hacked out to it. So then I used that and brought that into Gary and we sat down and worked out what the, what the structure was going to be. And um, then I wrote the words and the melody for, uh, for tomorrow night. So that song was written before, you know, the the bulk of everything else on present tense, because then that was the song for the Bob single. Um, there was also I had started a little snippet of a song at the end of Black Vinyl, and it was on four track. Um, and then after black vinyl, we bought an eight track machine, but I had this little snippet and I didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't a complete song, but John said, well, why don't we string it together? Like the Beatles medley, you know, why don't we take that snippet and I'll write a snippet and then Gary writes a snippet and we'll put it together and make one song out of it. So that's what became three times. You know, a lot of people, that, that song hit a nerve. It's, it's funny how that... That happened, and I had written that little front little piece and just had it kicking around because I really I wanted to. We we had really been influenced by that 10cc song. Um, I'm not in love with the background vocals kind of swelling in and yes. and fading out, and you know we love that sound. So that was kind of my attempt at recreating that tip of the hat to them to have those background vocals structured like that. Yeah. And um, and then John and Gary wrote their little sections, and it was all strung together. We actually physically cut it, cut it together. I don't think we replayed it um, as one piece. We actually did a section, stopped um, later on, did another section, stopped, and then did the third section and spliced. Um, and when I when I mastered the um, uh, the demo for um, um, for double exposure of three times, it was very obvious that they were really disjointed, and the edits weren't. Particularly, I mean, you could really feel like the the one had a lot more bass, or the other one was was real, uh, um, you know, real bright or whatever. And so I had to kind of smooth that out with the EQ um, to make sure that they fit together better.
when we re-recorded it for present tense, we may have strung it together. Uh, I don't remember if we strung it together as one, you know, kind of got one basic guitar pass that went all the way through and then, and then laid everything else around it. Um, but, um, those were two of the earlier songs. Um, I know that too late was one of the very last songs. Um, because one of the very last things that we did before, or that Gary did before we left for England was he added the riff to too late that became the, the trademark that that was, that was something that he added at the very last minute. And that really kind of became the defining, um, um, element of that song. I mean, it's a great song anyhow, but, um, that was one of those songs that we didn't expect to turn out as well as it did. And I remember when we, when we had finished recording, uh, we recorded everything out at uh, the manor in Oxfordshire. Uh, and we spent, I think probably four weeks out there. And then we booked two weeks in, in right in Soho section of London at, uh, Trident studios to do the mixing. And, um, we were in the lounge and uh, Mike Stone listened at just, just astronomical volume levels. I mean, they were so loud. Um, and we were in the lounge. We could hear that he was listening back to the mix and, um, we just go, we were listening and we just looked at each other like, man, that song really came together. You know, we, it hit us then that that song had kind of gelled in a, in a great way. Um, and, and we were then talking to Mike afterwards and he goes, you know something, it's really a shame that there's just one chorus at the end of the song. It really should have a double chorus. And we said, hmm, yeah, I guess you're right. That's too bad. And he goes, no, no, I, I'll do it. And we were like, what? <laughs> he took and, and duplicated the chorus with, on another tape machine and then spliced it on the end. And now it's a double chorus at the end. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> we had never seen that done before. Every time I see you that was the, we, we learned a lot from Mike, you know, we didn't realize, I mean, and again, that was not, I guess, uh, not that that should be, you know, a, a great epiphany, but to us it was because we were, we hadn't learned how to do that um, in our world, but to them, you know, it's a professional people. They knew about editing and splicing things together all the time. The album is a great blend of both acoustic and electric guitars, but it seems like since the recording of present tense, you've shied away from, recording many acoustic heavy songs over the years has that been a conscious decision we do still do a fair amount of it but it's i mean when we if, if you see interviews that we made back in the, those times we talked about the fact that some of our favorite bands were the ones that mixed acoustic and electric guitars it was that combination of we love the sound of stringed instruments and we love the balance that we were influenced by the one plus one album by Grin, uh, you know, the big, the, the first two big star albums, um, uh, were big influence. The, that, that, uh, even Ziggy Stardust, you know, you, you listen to songs that you just, oh, that song really rocks. You realize it's an acoustic guitar that's driving it. Maybe there's a electric guitar that adds some punch, but the acoustic guitar. So we liked that marriage of those two things. What we had done on present tense, we kept trying to make the guitars as thin and airy as possible. We used very thin picks. We used very thin strings. Um, we just liked that really bright, light 12-string airiness. And production-wise, I think we still do use that same combination, but I don't know that we're, we're EQing things the same way that we did then. Now we kind of make the, the acoustic guitars more full-bodied and less less uh, um, 
ethereal sounding. Um, but we still, I mean, I mean, on the last album on Ignition, a song like Joke's On You, that is that. Because the joke's on you. That is that combination of electric and acoustic. So we, we, we do still do that. We talk about that a lot. But I think what we do, well, even on present tense, um, there are songs that are just electric, obviously. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I know what you mean. There is that, that marriage. That, and, and, and those are probably my favorite types of songs because they're, they're in that middle ground. And I, I think that's where we are the most comfortable as a band. Um, that's where our sound flourishes the most. Did you have any extra songs that you had either written or recorded that did not make the album? No, there, yeah, we did have extra songs. And um, as a matter of fact, Karen, which ended up on uh, Tongue Twister, was, you know, John had demoed that um, at the same, in the same batch of songs um, as um, the present tense demos. Um, he didn't want to use it because the fact that he didn't want to have too many ballads on the same record. He, he thought that was too similar to your very eyes. And he didn't want to have that, you know, a, a few ballads go a long way in a record. I mean, I love, I think, and frankly, I think John is at his best when he writes that kind of song. Karen, I have always loved you, even when your arms were Again, if you do a lot of it, people call you wimpy, people write you off. And even as it was, people people would say, oh, yeah, you guys write love songs and you do, you know, this and this. Like, you're not listening real close because, yeah, some of them are, but some, some they're just about life. You know, they're, they're uh, and sometimes the songs uh, are cloaked in, I mean, it's like McCartney when he did um, Got to Get You Into My Life. I mean, you know, you hear that, it sounds like a lament for he's pining for some woman when actually he, it's his ode to marijuana, <laughs> you know, I mean, he talks about it that he just, he had discovered smoking marijuana and he just was saying how he, you know, really got off on it. And that was his kind of his, his ode to it. Um, we write songs in, in a similar way. I mean, we know what they're about, but they might be cloaked in a relationship theme that people might not understand. What do you feel that you learned from the experience of making present tense that has stuck with you to this very day? There's a lot of, uh, of, of things. One is uh, when we were mixing at, at Trident and, you know, we were getting, and I think it was driving Mike Stone crazy, but we're very hands-on. You know, we'll grab the, 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 the faders, we'll grab the EQ knobs and twist and turn and get things the way we want them, what we hear in our head or, or when we're trying to explain it. It's much quicker to just show them here in twist and do this and do that. Do that. And I remember one of the... Um, um, uh, assistant engineers from Trident. He said, you guys have a very English way of working. He said, where you don't care. He said, it used to be very um, uh, by the book. You know, you don't let the needles go in the red. You, you know, it's very, it was, but what it became from like Ziggy Stardust and all these things that were done at Trident later on. And it was, they, they did what they wanted to do to get the sound that they wanted. Didn't matter what was proper or what the technique was. They would just, if, if the needle was pounding in the red, they didn't care that, you know, that's the sound they wanted. And that may, that encouraged us to say, okay, we're not these outliers. We're not these guys that don't know what we're doing. Um, people, there are more people there. We're more right than we are wrong. You know, we, a lot of what we had had learned on our own was, in keeping with, with the way the professionals were doing it. So that was a good thing. It was very positive uh, reinforcement at that point, and we've never forgotten that.
Couple other things that we learned, like explained the 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 editing uh, of song editing that, that Michael did. That really, we learned that that stuck with us. But also, Michael had had shown us from his work with Queen because he had done you know a number of Queen albums. Um, that that when we structured our vocals, we would kind of go out there and sing them and do those, these harmonies, particularly in the background. And he would say, well, you know, you can thicken that up by doing more voices than just what you're doing. And we knew about double tracking, of course. We did that too. And he goes, no, I don't mean double tracking. He says, I'm talking four, five passes. You know, really make it full. Make this block of harmonies. And so that's what we we really got into that. We thought, man, that's really cool. And fortunately, that's kind of become a trademark of ours where we – we love that. We love the sound. We're, it's one of the, I think it's one of our strong suits is the fact that we hear these harmonies in our head. And so um, recently our drummer has a side project um, called uh, The Small Square. And they did a song. He's in it with uh, Paul Chastain from Velvet Crush and, and, um, and from, you know, Matthew Sweet's band. He plays bass in Matthew Sweet's uh, touring band. And, they had done a song and asked us to sing the background vocals on it. So we said, sure, we'd love to. I mean, I wish more people would ask us to do that because we love doing that. Um, we did one for the Sneetches. They had, they were doing a, a cover of the old raspberry song. Um, I want to be with you. Yeah. And they asked if we would sing the background harmonies and we said, Oh yeah, you know, sure. We love that. You know, <laughs> so, so we did that for them. Uh, they came up to the studio and they, they were sitting in the control room. We just hung a microphone in the control room so I could engineer at the same time that, you know, I was singing. So, uh, because it's, again, it's much faster to just do it rather than to explain to the engineer, go back to that second verse or, or you know, we know, we know how to do those things. So, so Gary and I in particular are very hands-on when it comes to, to, engineering and producing and performing at the same time. Sometimes you have to have somebody else man the, man the machine or the buttons or, or the controls, but uh, uh, very oftentimes we, we just love the feel. You really, you, you become part of it, you know, when you're, when you're twisting the knobs and not having somebody else doing it for you. And that's something that, that, that again, that all comes from that time, you know, from that, from that, those experiences. Uh, Mike Stone wasn't crazy about it. When we were doing it, we'd jump in and grab a fader or a knob, and I think he felt threatened by it that we were infringing on his <laughs> his territory. But that's just the way we are. That's just the way we do things. The next record, when we did Tongue Twister, um, Richard Dash, it was just the opposite. He encouraged us to use the demos. He encouraged us to get involved and twist and turn and do all that. Unfortunately, he was um, didn't like distorted guitars, for instance. Uh, he was much more meticulous about getting like these really pristine tracks and you know that was a different approach which we thought okay we'll try that we didn't we we kind of the second record we tried let's let okay let's not do the the block harmony background vocals um if john sings lead then gary and i will sing the background vocals if john if gary sings lead then john and i'll sing the background vocals you know so that but 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 typically all three of us are singing in the background vocals, even if the same guy is, you know, singing lead just because there's a blend, there's a blend to the three of us that we just really fits together. Well, well, Jeff, I'd like to thank you for stopping by the blanket fort and uh, sharing some of your memories about creating one of my favorite albums of all time. And one of the most beloved power pop albums of all time. Great. Well, thank you very much. I, yeah, I just hope we made uh, some people happy uh, from time to time when they hear our music because that's, that's the ultimate goal.
got the beach, you got the blanket, you got the fort, you got the bingo, you got the podcast, and what's not to love? Hi, it's Spaz, and it's time for But Is It Power Pop? Everybody's favorite YouTube series, now available in stereo. One, two, three, four... consideration in this episode i present to you young girls the debut album from la quartet the scooters originally released on emi america in 1980 the scooters were definitely somewhere between the knack and Badfinger sound wise they sort of got caught up in that whole power pop thing you know definitely got signed based on the success of the knack but there's music actually songs like let me in and Stuck on You were definitely Badfinger influenced. Both of those songs could probably end up maybe on No Dice or Straight Up by Badfinger. The album was produced by Phil Wayneman, who's best known for his work with uh, bands like Bay City Rollers. But the album is definitely edgy, new wavy power pop. Um, and here's uh, a few samples from the album. That's a medley of tracks from Young Girls, the debut album from L.A. Quartet, The Scooters, that came out in 1980. That is definitely power pop. Definitely influenced by The Knack, Badfinger, and other like-minded bands. Ironically enough, bassist and vocalist Larry Lee and drummer Bobby Dean Wickland were temporary members of Badfinger when Joey Mullen decided to tour in 1981 or 82 after his split with tom evans and that's it with this episode of but is it power pop welcome to the blanket fort powwow 
This is a segment where I get together to discuss different musical topics with some of my friends and colleagues. Today, I am joined by author and music journalist John Borak, Sacramento DJ Mike Lidskin, the pride of Texas himself, Victor Irwin, Florida-based musician Brad Beard, label owners and armoires bandmates, Christina and Rex, and live, all the way from the UK, that's the UK to you and me, Don Valentine. Today's topic is power pop. So how would our panelists best describe power pop? I'm going to start with you, Don Valentine. Thanks for being first for this. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know what power pop is. I mean, the, the definition, a lot of artists just seem to hate the label as well. But, you know, I, I have it incorporating everything. Certainly pop rock, certainly as comfortable with, say, you know, bands that we would say, like Badfinger and the Raspberries. But it, it's really, really difficult because if you look, you know, band, bands over here, like the Sherlocks and stuff, could easily be included in, in Power Pop. Um, it's just something that we've tend to stuck at of, of guitar, um, guitar-based pop, really. It's more of a, of a, a feeling the, the, you know, if you look at the armoires, I would never say that the armoires are power pop. No, no. But what you would say about the armoires is the way they look at the uh, at the at the the, mu- the music and the camaraderie. It's very power pop. Definitely. Now, uh, John Borak, what is your definition of power pop? Ask different people, and they'll all give you a different answer. And there's really no way to say, oh, this is, this isn't. Yeah. You know, to me. The the music, if it's to be considered, quote, power pop, unquote, it's has to have that certain melodic aesthetic to it. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think it's not, you can't really call bands power pop anymore for the most part. It's more of a song medium, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, Raspberries, everyone says, well, Raspberries were a great power pop band. Sure when they were doing Eric Carmen songs, <laughs> when they were doing Wally Bryson songs, they were, they were free. The, yeah. the band yeah. free. <laughs> uh, when, when they were doing Dave Smalley songs, they were like an Eagles tribute band. Mm. You know, <laughs> all the Badfinger songs certainly aren't a power. Exactly. Pop, but by God, right. most of Pete Hems were. And, and, you know, and, and then you get into the whole, well, is Emmett Rhodes power pop? Well, no, God, he's not powerful. I mean, he's sitting behind right. the piano or plunking on a guitar, but, the songs have that certain melodicism to them. And I think, you know, that's what people connect with. And so it kind of gets lumped in to uh, the genre. But, you know, it's it's whatever people it's whatever people want it to be. <laughs> you know, if you think something's power pop and I think it's not, I might argue with you. But it doesn't mean I'm wrong. It doesn't mean you're wrong. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um Brad Beard, how would you describe power pop? Well, you know, it it really does, as John said, all start with the hook. And, you know, as a fan of this genre, going back to the Bump magazine, um, you know, there there was a very limited, but a lot of ba- bands that you'll see described as power pop think that if you have kind of chunky, you know, chords and sing about girls and have a chorus, it's okay, but there's no hooks there. And, you know, I think the hooks are really the, 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 the alpha and the omega of power pop and associated with it. It's all about the hook to me. So you're like, you know, Jimmy Webb isn't power pop, but writes great songs. Right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's people that are, quote, power pop that like I can't listen to their entire album because some of the songs aren't there. You know, the true power pop, I guess, has always been said kind of the you know, starts with the who where it's crunchy with lots of melodies and goes from there. But I don't think there's a simple definition. To me, it's all about the hook. And from Brad in Florida, I now turn to you, Victor Irwin in Texas. Well, you know, Spider Pop Records tagline uh-huh. is hook revolutions. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty much in agreement with I think it was Brad that was talking about the hook. I diverge from you guys uh, and gals on the definition because I, I narrow it pretty severely. I think it's crunchy guitars, uh, melodic songs, uh, song structure like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, uh, and um, probably harmonies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, just because you 
play power pop doesn't necessarily make you a power pop band. All right. So one of my favorite power pop songs is Rockaway Beach by the Ramones. Well, my God, they're punk, but it's got crunchy guitars, song structure, melody. And, and, you know, the lyrics are chewing out the rhythm of my bubble gum. I mean, (laughs) it doesn't get any better for me. Um, but you know, I, I kind of in the Pete Townsend school, when he described, I can see for miles as power pop, I always emphasize the power in it. And a lot of people broaden the category by em- emphasizing the pop. Now, Rex and Christina with big stir records is power pop, something that you focus on or is, is power pop just a piece of the big stir puzzle? It's what influences much of the music. But it's an umbrella for so many other sort of offshoot genres. Yeah, I would I would say the reason why power pop, if you get away from that that very strict definition of it, is a good is is a very one of the, kind of the only valid starting point, is because it's sort of what I it's almost unique in that it's what I consider to be like an er genre, like an over genre. Most genres that you can speak about are kind of pegged to an era. Power pop uniquely isn't. Um, It has had one form or another of heyday in just about every decade in rock and roll history, I would say. I mean, you've got to say that the roots, and we even said Buddy Holly, so that'll give us the 50s. Oh, yeah. But um, the 60s, obviously, is the roots with the Beatles and the Kinks and the and the Beach Boys and, and the Birds. Um, and the Who? Uh, so yeah, Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend Townsend having coined the term, right? Yeah. Um, we have those 70s bands that, that are the, you know, thought of as the quintessential ones. Um but there's no question that a lot of what goes on in uh, 80s college rock was extremely of the same mold as power pop. Uh, I, we all know that there was a big 90s resurgence. Um, and certainly uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of people doing it now. And unlike like Mercy Beat, well, that was in the 60s and it remains of the 60s. But power pop could be Paisley. Power pop could be Skinny Ties. Power pop could be a number of different things. And everyone that... I think there's very few bands that purvey it predominantly that don't have influences from outside. Well, right. I've noticed that like Mike Lidskin plays a lot of stuff on his show that some people might consider power pop, but I don't necessarily consider it power pop. But I think that it occupies the like the same musical universe as the stuff that I listen to, the stuff that I consider I think- power pop. I used to have the real narrow definition. I'd heard the term for years, but I didn't think it was such a big thing until like maybe the last decade. My definition was upbeat, simple, straightforward, rock and roll. It was, you know, the raspberries go all the way. My Sharona it was romantics, what I like about you, and pretty much anything by shoes. But, you know, I'm finding that, like, to, to Rex's point, it really transcends all decades, unlike most genres. And, a lot of times the power pop label has been applied in what I, to what I feel kind of retroactively. Um, I was a huge fan of the 90s alternative music, not the grunge, but the stuff that came right before it. And to my big surprise, because I didn't know all you guys, I didn't know anybody that liked the kind of music I liked. I thought when I was listening to the Smithereens and listening to Matthew Sweet, listening to the Lemonheads, Blake Babies, I thought I was listening to alternative rock. You know, now look, listening to it 25 years later, it's like, you know, a lot of that's power pop and everybody's. I was shocked when people started calling the smithereens power pop because I thought it's too dark and it's too complex. But, you know, the elements are there and they even call themselves power pop. So who am I to argue? Music I've liked all these years has pretty much been what you've all described as power pop, except I used to call it rock music. In today's terms, when kids when I tell kids like my son, you know, I'm into rock, it's like, no, that dad, that's not rock. Rock is like really hardcore, loud stuff that my parents probably would have hated I was me listening to, and so I'm sounding like the old guy. So I don't use the term rock anymore because it really doesn't mean what it used to. I say rock and roll, or I say power pop. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. tough. That word rock means is is doesn't mean hard. It's it refers to a dance. Yeah, and I think we need to remember that. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's rock, really rock and roll. It's a dancing rhythm. It's not like er. It's hard granite. Er, you know. I mean, the roots of it is communal dance music. I think that is a really important yeah. thing to remember. <laughs> Podcast. You're in New York. 
In 1982, I heard a song called Everywhere That I'm Not by San Francisco Quartet Translator. It was the first single pulled from their Heartbeats and Triggers album. I became an instant fan of the band and bought all four of the albums they released on Columbia. After the fourth album, Evening of the Harvest, in 1986, the band went on hiatus and each member pursued other interests, occasionally working together throughout the years. Singer-songwriter-guitarist Steve Barton began a solo career and has released some amazing music over the years. His most recent album, Tall Tales and Alibis, is perhaps his most intimate, honest, and raw album to date. But this is no normal release. Tall Tales and Alibis is an awe-inspiring three-CD set that finds Barton in three distinct moods. Disc 1 and 2 are intimate and up-close and feature Steve on his own, while Disc 3 finds him backed by an all-star band that includes translator drummer Dave Sheff, bassist Derek Anderson, Brian Wilson band member Nelson Bragg, Elvis Costello drummer Pete Thomas, and others. I was able to talk to Steve about the album and discuss his thoughts about the recording process and so much more. Your new triple album, Tall Tales and Alibis, is now available. How are you feeling about the album and the reaction to it so far? So far, the reaction has been fantastic. I mean, the early you know, reviews have been actually pretty stellar, some of the best I've ever gotten. So I, that makes me feel really good because it makes me feel I wasn't crazy. Because <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a, a big project to undertake. And uh, to have people you know, actually like it makes me feel really good. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is 2018. You know, most artists yeah. can barely squeak out an EP, let alone a triple album. What was the inspiration behind going that extra mile with this album? Well, um, it started, I had recorded the what is now the third album of this triple album, the one that has a band on it. Uh, the first one is It's All Me, and the second one's All Me, and then the third one is with the band. But I recorded that album... And then suddenly started writing a bunch more songs and I recorded them at my studio here in Portland and thought, Oh, this is like an album's worth of songs. And then another album's worth of songs kind of came out in the next, you know, little bit of time. It was more sort of slow and quiet and dark. And I thought, what am I going to do with this? I, I, I want to put them all out. And so it just sort of morphed into a triple album, you know, in this day and age of people not putting, you know, buying albums, supposedly, I'll put out a triple album. Why not? <laughs> so the third disc in the set is the first album of the three that you recorded. Were these songs that had been building up over time? Um, yeah, kind of. They were, they were, um, I tend to write a, in, in sort of first, like write a bunch of songs and then I want to record them. So these are all sort of written around the same time. And um, that album uh, I worked with my dear friend Marvin Etzioni, who was uh, one of the co-founders of the great band Lone Justice, mm -hmm. and um, another friend, Willie Aaron, who was in um, The Balancing Act. Mm -hmm. And so um, they helped you know, produce that record. And um, I worked with Marvin especially, kind of honing the songs, getting them together. And we have, I think, three or four co-writes on that, on that album. And um, put together a band with um, Dave Sheff from Translator on Drums, and Pete Thomas from Elvis Costello's band on drums on some of the songs. And then, um, you know, various other great players, Derek Anderson on bass and Nelson Bragg from Brian Wilson's band on percussion. And, you know, it, it, just this kind of band we put together and we all we played it in the studio live for the most part. I mean, there's some overdubs, but for the most part. And then that was finished. It, it took about, I'd say we recorded that in the, probably about a week. And then... Um, kind of had it all mixed 
and mastered. And then one thing led to another and it, it became part of the, uh, the triple album. It's kind of what happened. For every road that brings you near, a thousand more lead you far away. I dreamed about you last night. You said you'd be there waiting in the storm. Don't come in from the rain. Don't come in from the rain. Don't come in from the rain. I gotta find. Now the albums, all three of them, actually, they feel very organic, and they feel like each album has its own purpose. For each set of songs, when you started recording them, did you have a particular vision of how you wanted those songs to sound, or did it just yeah. all come out organically? It, well, it came out organically, but I did sort of have a, a, a vision, if you will. I mean, the one of the albums, the second one, the songs were all slower and kind of mm-hmm. dark and moody. Um, that one, each song had to be like that, and if I started to have a song for that record and get too you know too much going on or suddenly put something in that didn't work it was like no 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 this has to be this this is i wanted to make a record you could just sort of put on and you know yeah people over for dinner that record could be on it's not like and you're the big pop single you know it's not it suddenly gets loud <laughs> yeah so it's a record that stays the same through the whole thing yeah because each disc travels down a different musical path in terms of mood and atmosphere did you want the listener to approach each disc as an entirely different entity or do you want them to listen to each of the discs as one third of a bigger picture um ideally i mean i don't know if people have this kind of time in our busy modern world but um ideally if, if you know someone can listen to it from start to finish all the records that, that's great i get that that's a chunk of time um but i think each record like you said that they stand up on their own and their their own individual vibe so you can sort of what mood you're in you can put that record on if you want to the great thing about disc one is the fact that even though it's well in fact i i guess i'd I'd have to say both uh or the first two discs when you think about a singer-songwriter disc you know you sit down with a singer-songwriter and it all sounds the same Every right. every song is built differently. You know, you've got the electric guitars coming in in stereo on this, or you got an arpeggio on that, or you have uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, a piano on this. And it takes you completely out of that sort of boring, samey situation. And I'm, re- I'm glad that you say that. Th- that, I think, is the marvelous thing about it. Because literally, when you sit there and you listen from beginning to end, you're not going, oh, it's the same thing again. Well, I think that my sort of foundation or something or my background, the records that I grew up with and still listen to um, are like that. Mm-hmm. If you think of a record like, um, and I'm not comparing myself to anybody, but if you you know, think of something like Hunky Dory or Ziggy Stardust, I mean, all the songs are very different, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, or certainly a Beatle record. Of course, there were different writers, but, you know, it's it's all... I, I like that, that sort of varied, uh, you know, approach. Sometimes the streets are made out of quicksand. Sometimes the streets are made out of gold. Hard to guess which secrets you will tell. And which ones you will hold. Don't know what you Why did you choose to rearrange and reinterpret Unalone? Why that song ah. amongst the other ones? <clears throat> it, it was sort of almost a happy accident because I had, I was doing a show in Seattle and um, I was playing that song, just me on guitar. I was doing a solo show and I, I was doing Unalone and I thought it'd be kind of fun to start it real slow and moody. So I did the first verse like that and then launched into the up-tempo version, like the translator record mm-hmm. and um, ended it like that. 
and then I was talking to a friend of mine who was there and he said that the person he was with kind of whispered to him during when I was playing the song, I hope he does the whole song like this when I was playing it quiet. Mm-hmm. And him saying that to me kind of sparked something. So I went upstairs to my studio. I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. And it just worked. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to own it and just really commit to it. And, you know, just unapologetically, I'm going to do it like this. And I, I'm really glad that I did. My heart has a mind of its own. Your heart has a mind of its own. I'm a restless shadow on a street of stone we are only strangers we want to be unalone one of the major things i think the songs are completely honest what i mean by honest is not just like a lyrical thing it's also the feeling that you get from the record you know you do this stuff in the dark and you don't know if anybody you know a gives a shit or b is going to get it um or you know anything like that and to um because i spend a lot of time on these things and you know i'll be up at night in the middle of the night um you know, and I'll have to get out of bed at three o'clock in the morning because it's like, oh, wait a minute, that word should be about, not instead. You know, I gotta go over <laughs> here. You know, I'm, I'm always tweaking these things. You know, yeah. should that be a comma there? Wait a minute. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of the, the stuff means you know the world to me. So I, I really I try to put everything into it. So I'm really glad that came across like that. Going back to the, it's very honest. You know, I wanted to be kind of stripped down and just. I knew I liked it, so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna put a record out that I like and just see what happens. And that that's kind of where it all came from. Are there recordings left over from this period that you just didn't make the album for some reason? There are. Yes, there are. So, and I've, I've got, I would say, five or so, five or six songs for what hopefully will be the next record. You know, I'm always writing. I'm mm-hmm. still writing stuff. So, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, as a songwriter, do you, do you compose differently today than you did like back in the translator days? Like are, are there songs on this album that you feel could work on a translator record? I do. I, well, yeah, I think some of them could work on a translator record and there might be some songs that, you know, I've kind of got in my back pocket that, um, could definitely work on a translator record. But, um, yeah, I think some could in terms of the way I approach the writing. It's not that different. I mean, you know, there's a great quote from, from, John Lennon that I think of sometimes, you know, they talking about his new, some new solo album he had. He said, you know, it's the same old rubbish. <laughs> and I love that. You know, it's just like, you know, I, I, I kind of write in the same way that I have since I started writing when I was 12 and, you know, just um, with the guitar, the piano, and um, it's either, you know, usually it's a melody comes first sort of or the chords or maybe there'll be a line that, oh, that's a good line, and, you know, write a song around that. And then on that rare, you know, magical occasion where it's just like you sit down, there's a song on the record called Tearing Out the Roses, which is a piano song. And I um, literally, we were even working in the garden and literally tearing out some roses. And I went over to the piano and sang that line and essentially played the song. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, this is happening. No matter what they claim About a rose by any other name It won't be you It won't be you So that's like one of those weird things And that doesn't happen all the time It happened with Everywhere That I'm Not And a couple other songs of mine But that doesn't happen all the time Will we ever hear a new translator record? I think we will. I mean, uh, there was a, one that we put out called Carriage of Days um, in 2017, kind of under the radar, put it out online, and we had CDs that we sold at a couple of shows we did. Um, but that's still available, and um, it's, and it's streaming and on Spotify and all that stuff. 
but yeah, I could definitely see us doing another record. My, my sort of idea is to um, see what happens with, with uh, Tall Tales and Alibis. I definitely want to do some touring. And then I don't know if it'll be later this year or next year or something. You know, see, you know, I could see Translator doing something. What is next for Steve Barton? And is there any chance of beating The Clash and putting out a quadruple album? Hmm, no. I think the <laughs> next, well, I'm not going to say no, but uh, I think the next record, um, I think, um, I'd like to do something sort of quick and dirty with a band and just mm-hmm. like a, you know, 10 song you know, rock and roll record. That's sort of in the back of my mind, but that's sort of what I'm thinking now. But I've also written some songs. You know, like, I, I sort of like albums be a snapshot of where you're at at that time. And so if I'm writing songs now and I'm not recording it for a year, you know, it depends on how good the song is. If it stands the test of time, then, you know, I'd, I'd keep it. But I'll, I'll keep writing more songs too. Sometimes the songs are like cobweb cleaning songs, I call them, where it's like, you'll write a song, you think, this is great. And then I, you know, the next day or a few months later, you go, eh, or that's not that great, but it led to this song, you know, so that happens sometimes too. I'd like to thank Steve Barton for stopping by the Blanket Fort. Remember to check out Tall Tales and Alibis. It's the brand new album from Steve, and that is a three CD set uh, that's available now. Uh, you can check out more information on Steve over at stevebartonmusic.com. that's our show i'd like to thank our guests jeff murphy and steve barton for stopping by the blanket fort i'd like to thank my entire powwow panel and most of all i'd like to thank you for hanging out here at beach blanket fort bingo my name is spaz and i'll see you next time and stay tuned in a matter of seconds for brand new music from the cherry blue storms thank you Smell you later. In the green of space and the blue of time, I climbed the highest mountain and I claimed the peak as mine. No sooner had I flown my colors there I heard my name called from below And found myself ensnared, ensnared You were never